Let me tell you a story, podcast number five. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. Call me Ishmael. It was the age of wisdom. Some years ago. Never mind. It is a truth universally You don't know about me without you. Welcome to Let Me Tell You a Story with hosts Steve and Becky Lyle. Settle back into your seat, step onto your favorite fitness machine, or lace up your walking shoes, and enjoy stories from a variety of genres and authors. Hi, I'm Steve. Hi, I'm Becky. Welcome to Let Me Tell You a Story. Today, we're reading writings by some of our friends in the Boise, Idaho writing community, including a poem by Chris White, a Lisa Hess short story from the Passageways compilation, the first chapter of Adam Graham's detective novel, Slime Incorporated, love that title, and the first chapter of Angela Ruth Strong's Love Finds You in Sun Valley, Idaho. I'll start with Bad Girl by Lisa Michelle Hess. On a Thursday afternoon, our town's small library is empty, except for my librarian and me, which is good because her expression is equal parts concern and annoyance. But that's not the worst of it. I'm standing on the other side of the counter with obscenities about to burst from my lips like birds from a cage. And I'm wondering, how did I get here? Somehow I've ended up the leader of a women's book club. When I told my sister she laughed so loud I had to hold the phone away from my ear. Why do you do these things to yourself? I pictured her shaking her head at me. People stress you out, she said. You should be living in a cabin on a mountain, somewhere with no electricity and a phone you only have for emergencies. Instead, you end up with 15 women and twice as many toddlers descending on your home once a week for scones, coffee, and reassurance. Why do you let this happen to you? I didn't mean to, just like I didn't plan to be standing here staring at my librarian with some of the vilest words in the English language pounding in my brain to the rhythm of my ever-increasing heartbeat. The women in my book club are in their 20s and 30s, with a couple of old girls like me who were in their 40s and did careers first, then kids. They run the gamut of liberal and hipster rich to extremely conservative and not so wealthy, from self-educated to multi-graduate degreed which makes for some weird cross-cultural discussions, by the way. But generally, everyone is fairly accepting. We're all Christians of one kind or another, so we have to at least act like we love each other. Most of the time, I think the affection is genuine. I could be wrong, though. My sister knows me well. Intuition about human relationships is not my strong point. And these women could despise each other, for all I know. But they keep coming back, week after week, and I don't think it's just for the coffee. One of the wealthy members, concerned for the not-so-wealthy ones, wanted to see if we could find some way to get our books for free. My poorer book club members never suggested they had trouble getting their hands on a book, but they took the gesture in the spirit it was offered. We'd been reading the series called The Bad Bible Girls about women in the line of Christ who'd led, well, less than exemplary lives, and our discussions were going well. The members had all warmed to the idea that God accepted and used imperfect, diverse women just like them. Somebody learned that if we registered our book club with the local library, we could get copies for all of us and a longer checkout period. Great idea, everyone agreed. However, liberal hipster Rich said, we have to have a name for our group. That discussion took up the rest of the meeting, but everyone finally decided on a name. 
The next day, I added a library visit to my long list of errands and car and kid carpools. All I had to do was run in, tell the librarian the name of our group, and sign a form. How long could it take? Are you sure that's the name you want? My librarian looked as if I just served her monkey brains. She peered at me over her glasses, expecting a response, but I was caught off guard. My hot, hungry, increasingly bored children were waiting in the car. And was she really going to make an issue out of this? Well, yeah, I'm sure. I didn't even try to disguise my impatience. Everybody agreed to it. I adore my book club friends, but navigating a course through their personalities can be treacherous. As my librarian's lips straightened into a disapproving line, I imagined the women in my group arguing about a more appropriate name as they changed the aromatic diapers of frustrated toddlers and nursed their wailing infants. I don't think so. We're not changing that name. You know, a lot of people in the system are going to see this name, the librarian said, as if I hadn't responded. There's the woman over at Central who handles the book clubs, and my boss over in Smithton, just for a start. They list the names of all the book clubs in the newsletter, you know. I don't think they'll understand. That was when my already tissue-thin patience shredded, and my brain filled with some language, as they say in the movie guides. Really, those words rarely come out of my mouth. I think them all the time, though. I may not be of the world, but I'm in it, you know? I can't understand why she cares so much about the admittedly inappropriate nature of the name we've chosen. I rack my brain, trying to make sense of this attitude I'm getting from her. Why these ways of criticism crashing toward me from across the desk? I actually like this librarian. I consider her a friend of sorts. Her kids are about the same age as mine. We've had some good conversations at soccer games about kids, husbands, life. Her face with its frown as censure fades, and the dusty, musty smell of the library is replaced by the scent of loamy earth and wet grass. I remember one particular evening I spent with her. We are leaning against our cars, watching the kids on the field, while dust settles around us and mist beads on our fleece jackets. We discuss how much we love our families and our friends, but they wear us out. We cry and we laugh. We hug when we say goodbye. But that was a long time ago. Her face comes back into focus and my brain fills with those words that betray my lack of self-control, like they're plastered across her forehead. Before I completely lose it, I want to be finished with this. It's taking up too much time, as if the rest of my life isn't draining enough. Look, I practically yell, that's the name. I stretch across the counter and jab at her computer screen with my finger. Type it into the computer. I enunciate each word clearly. Bad Bible girls. That's what we are, freaking bad Bible girls. At that precise instant, the stern, white-haired president of the library board, of which I am also an officer, walks through the door with my three sweaty, forlorn-looking children close on her heels. They all stand there staring at us, mouths agape, eyes wide, My librarian friend looks from them to me and turns to her keyboard. She shrugs and starts typing. Okay, she says, a smirk tugging at the corner of her lips. You're freaking bad Bible girls. She covers her mouth to try to muffle the chuckle she can't contain, but it's no use. In seconds, we're both laughing out loud. The sound echoes through the library and fills it up. My kids join in, but the elderly member of our audience has a horrified expression on her face. 
I can see she's trying to decide which of which one of us to accuse of what. If she picks me, I'll have no excuse. What can I say? I'm a bad girl. And this is Slime Incorporated, the first chapter of that, uh, written by Adam Graham. First chapter. So would you put idiot or moron? Jerry Newton looked up at me from behind his gold-colored PC. Eustick, neither is quite up to our professional standards. The boss and I were seated in the office of Newton Investigations. We had eight peeling artificial wood desks and eight mismatched office chairs in need of yet another reupholstering. My other six colleagues had either all gone home for the weekend or were out on assignment. The sterile white walls bore only our business license and the first dollar the business ever collected. Both framed items hung behind the boss near the window. It gave a nice view of the traffic headed down River Street toward the library, which was cleverly named library. I swished around in my mouth my flavorless juicy fruit gum. This has got to be the dumbest guy I've run into yet. I go to his house and he's got a stack of these stolen computers with the company lease numbers facing the windows, mind you. He copped out to the whole thing and I got on to him just because of his shoes. How? Newton asked as he picked lint off his navy sweater vest. He was chubby, but his afternoon snack was plain celery sticks and a plastic baggie. They were on his desk beside his Idaho Medal of Honor for Law Enforcement certificate. He straightened it. They were just a pair of tennis shoes. To the untrained eye, but I saw their label. Those shoes retail for $300 on Amazon. They're not available locally. 30 bucks would be pricey for a pair of shoes on his pay. Newton typed on his computer's keyboard. You have too much faith in your own instincts, you stick. If they'd been a gift from a rich friend, you would have cost the client two billable hours plus and 96 miles of gasoline. He lives in Homedale, I snorted. If the people there had friends that gave them $300 shoes, they wouldn't live in Homedale. That's where you're wrong. Some of us don't want to spend our whole lives like rats trapped on a wheel. I smirked. Did we get transported to New York or Philly? Boise is only, what, the 120th largest city in America? The boss stopped typing and glared at me. 104th, you stick. Sorry, I didn't get the latest circular from the Chamber of Commerce. He pointed a salary stick at me. You can be wrong. Sure, I'm wrong 25% of the time. That's built into my salary. Otherwise, I'd be Sherlock Holmes and you couldn't afford me. I'd be living the good life in Homedale. The boss leaned forward. You're playing with people's money and lives. Sometimes it's like you're living out of boyhood fantasy. Nah, it was simply easier to get on here than to join the Power Rangers and becoming a cowboy was impractical. The boss sighed. Never mind. Do you have anything else to do other than distract me? I have to hit the save button on my Word document. Do control S. It'll give me more time to work without you chattering. A bald man in his 30s blustered through the door. The stranger wore a pinstripe suit, a red tie, wingtips, and a ghost of a permanent smirk from the wrinkles around his mouth. I thought, time to live up to Newton's definition of professionalism. 
I turned my head away from the visitor, spit my used-up gum in a wrapper, and dropped it in the trash can under my desk. The stranger, the stranger was swaggering past me, smelling like a $50 bottle of Gucci cologne. He stopped by Newton's desk. Hey, Fig! The boss shuddered, but shoved the celery in his desk and looked up with a standard-issue professional smile. Are you talking to me, sir? Sir, laughing, our guest slapped his leg. That's no way to talk to the best power forward ever in the history of Mount Tacoma High. I certainly remember our respectable point guard. Newton scrunched his eyebrows together and stood. I'm sorry, I don't remember you. High school was more years ago than I'd like to admit. Fig, I'm surprised. You're a detective. I rolled my eyes. Not another joker who thinks detectives have Jedi powers. The smirk grew wider. Okay, the old powers of deduction are allowed to be a little off at the end of a hard week. I'm Bart Bradley. Newton eyed Bradley's chrome dome and inhaled, leaning away from him. You've changed a lot. You haven't, aside from too many donuts. The jerk's smirk stretched into the proportions of a cheeky grin. Gritting his teeth, Newton shook his hand and waved at the chair across from his desk. Have a seat. What can I do for you? The chair creaked as Bradley lowered himself into it. Fig, I knew you'd, I need you to help with a background check on a job candidate. I sighed. Great. I'm the only operative available, so this will delay my weekend. Newton sat and pulled a yellow notepad from his desk drawer. Who's the candidate? Bradley reached into his jacket's inside pocket, pulled a photo out, and slid it across Newton's desk. The boss glanced at it, snarled, and flicked the photo back at Bradley like he'd wanted to stab him with it. Go to the devil! I gaped at him. What had gotten into him? Bradley raised a hand. Fig, and another thing. Fig jumped up and got in Bradley's face, his eyes blazing. I hated that nickname in high school. If you use it again, I'll lay you out. You lied right off and said this was an employer background check. You want a smear job? Find yourself another boy, Pally. Bradley stood. Opposition research is a legit field of investigation. Nice Orwellian euphemism. A lot of men look good until you find out who they really are. You can hire every bottom feeder in Boise, but they won't find anything on Ignacio Hernandez. Newton stabbed a finger at Bradley. Get your rear out of my office before Mr. Eustick and I toss you out on it. I stood, and there I thought I wouldn't have any fun at work before I went home. Bradley shook his head and chuckled. Too bad, Newton. Just wanted to send an old pal some business. He glanced around at our office. Looks like you could use it. With that, he strode out the door without closing it. Party pooper. I flopped at my desk. Newton strode to the door and slammed it. The frame rattled. He kicked over the empty trash can by his desk, straightened the can, and sat. Eustick, give me that report, now. I bit back a comeback and emailed Newton the report. I poked my head out from behind my computer. That was disappointing. It's been years since I've gotten to toss somebody out on their rear. Newton sighed. I'm sorry. That was unprofessional. I rolled my chair out into the aisle, so I was facing his desk. Oh, I found it entertaining. You were so upset, I thought you might say Fanny. But I did curse out a potential client. In a way I consider worthy of being made fun of, I thought. Two questions, boss. Newton glowered. What? What kind of nickname is Fig? 
put the nickname and my last name together. Fig Newton. <laughs> I chuckle. That's a good one. I'll have to remember it. He grimaced. Just don't repeat it. Second question. Why did you go nuts over exposing a politician? Don't you have work to do other than shutting down my computer? Nope. I'm ready to go home. So again, what set you off? Newton turned his chair towards me. When I was in college, I worked part-time at Hernandez's corporate office. During my sophomore year, my dad died while stopping an armed robbery. I left school and sought a full-time job that could support my family. Hernandez found out. He helped my mom find work and took care of my undergraduate tuition as well as my brother's. Nice guy. And there's never been any publicity about it. He really took an interest in me, and I'm not the only one. He and his wife are good people. It boils my blood to think, because he wants to make the state better, they're going to be put through the ringer by the likes of Bart Bradley. I lean back. Hernandez sounds like the type of guy I might vote for, if I voted. Newton lifted his chin. I never took you for an idiot. My cheeks grew hot. What do you mean by that? Smiling, the boss leaned in. In ancient Greece, the word idiot referred to people who didn't vote. I waved it aside. In modern America, idiot means the guy who sits on pins and needles for two weeks on call waiting to see if our beloved county will summon him to jury duty. That won't happen to me. Eh, you'd be surprised. The registered voters list doesn't double as jurors here in at least in Idaho. You can still be called. I won't get called. Anyway, are you going to tell your kindly benefactor to watch his back? Newton shook his head. Hernandez has been around long enough to know a gubernatorial campaign isn't going to be a breezy picnic. Even scum like Bradley deserve what happens in this office to be confidential. I looked at my watch. Now that my curiosity is satisfied, mind if I leave? I've already put in 44 hours this week, and you have no client to bill for my overtime pay. The boss waved me away. Sure, see you on Monday. I shut down my computer. I pulled my fine black hair out of its ponytail, retied it, and let it fall just below my shoulder blade to the middle of my back. I put on my scarlet fedora and walked to the coat rack. I pulled on my tan overcoat on over my scarlet suit worn with a pair of red leather wingtips. Under my jacket, I carried a 9mm Glock and a shoulder holster. After ambling out of the building, I walked down the stairs and onto the sidewalk. A little uneven pile of slush remained on a shadowed portion of the grass. The rest of the grass was wet with no slush. The sun was shining bright with a cold wind, and a cold wind was blowing, as if nature wasn't quite sure what season it was. Typical for February in Boise. I hopped into my pink 2005 Jaguar. Across the parking lot, Newton's pal Bradley sat at the wheel of a late-model silver Impala with rental car plates, hunched over a smartphone. On second thought, my curiosity hasn't quite been satisfied. Where would you go to find a bottom-feeding private detective in Boise? I plugged my iPhone into the car's docking station and turned on my tunes. Beyonce's voice filled the cabin. Three songs in, Bradley finished with the phone and started the Impala. I waited for him to pull out before following him and merged into traffic two car lengths back. We drove down River Street, across 9th, past the library, and turned left onto Capitol. Near the end of the boulevard, Bradley turned right onto Bannock and pulled into a parking lot of a two-story building. The wooden sign listed only one private investigator firm, Cheryl Thompson & Associates. 
Bradley parked and stomped to Thompson's office. While that figured, I drove around the block three times before finding a metered parking space in front of a dentist's office half a block away, in sight of Bradley's car. Time for the most exciting part of my job, waiting. I fed the meter for half an hour's worth of parking and popped in a fresh stick of juicy fruit. I leaned back in my seat, savored the orange cream pop flavor, and hunkered down with the angry birds on my iPhone. After 20 minutes, Bradley came downstairs, got in the car, fiddled with his smartphone a bit, and drove away. I followed him over to 9th and to Vista Avenue. About two miles down, he hung a left into the lot of the Holiday Inn Express. Most likely, he was simply returning to his hotel room after having found his bottom feeder. Cheryl Thompson would turn down a paying job the day Donald Trump refused publicity. Either way, it wasn't my case. I yawned. Time to head home. A few minutes later, I parked outside my duplex's garage, picked up a stack of mail I, I grabbed from my box, and went inside the house. The kitchen's gray tile stretched into the entryway. I headed to the left onto the slate-blue living room carpet. Against one wall was a baby blue leather couch with matching recliner. I laid the mail on the end table by my recliner. To the right of it was my purple keyboard on a music stand with a brown chair borrowed from the dinette set. On the wall across from the couch was a stone shelf. There I kept three food flavor candles in jars and one lighter. I lit the butterscotch blondies candle and breathed in the fresh out of the oven smell without the fuss. I slipped my phone into the high-end docking station and turned on the radio app. The hip-hop station's tune poured out of the station speakers. I switched it to a reggae station, perfect for chilling on a Friday afternoon. I settled into my recliner and smiled up my mural of the Vermilion Rocks at Pariah Canyon. The ruddy, spiraled formations looked like they were from another world. After a minute, I yawned and sorted the mail. Junk, circular, junk, junk. Letter from Ada County. Huh? What would the county want with me? Assessments shouldn't be out for a couple months. I opened the letter and cursed. A summons for jury duty. That is Adam Graham, first chapter, Slime Incorporated. Now I'll be reading the first chapter of Angela Graham's first book, titled Love Finds You in Sun Valley, Idaho. Tapping the brakes to turn off the cruise control in her rented Ford Escape, Emily squinted to read another marker located along Highway 21. The windy road transitioned from the forested mountains to the dry valley, where the pine trees grew taller as if wearing stilts. This meant she was getting closer to the river and her resort destination. When she was growing up, Dad had always refused to take her to Sun Valley, Idaho. Said he'd rather avoid the snobs who vacation there. Of course... He was referring to the rich and famous, the actors and actresses, which, ironically, she now was. An actress, anyway, never a snob. Should she feel guilty for staying in the swanky lodge? Nah, she needed a good night's rest before the flurry of filming swept her downstream, literally, especially after spending a week with Mom in her hometown of Boise. She also needed a bathroom and a hot meal, Spying a rustic restaurant snuggled next to the bend in the river, she pressed harder on the brakes before swinging onto the gravel side road leading to the log building. The point restaurant looked as if it were in need of some sprucing up, 
but by the number of cars parked out front, the food must have made up for any lack of elegance. Emily pulled the compact SUV into what might be considered a parking space and leaned over the passenger side to pull her purse from underneath a sweatshirt. Because it was July, she'd only brought summer clothes, but Mom had pretended to be practical for a moment and and insisted she take the ugly orange Boise State hoodie. Guess it was always good to be prepared. Behind her, the driver's side door jerked open with a squeak. The car rocked and the sun baked her back, though that didn't keep goosebumps from popping up on her flesh. Reactively, she dug one hand into her purse for a can of mace as she whipped around to confront the intruder. Every muscle was tensed as possible scenarios tore through her imagination. Hijacker, mugger, crazed fan, her makeup stylist? Emily Van Arsdale, said her stylist. What took you so long? Oh, never mind. We'll say you got a flat tire. Or you got lost. Is that what happened? You got lost? Didn't you grow up around here? Charlene didn't wait for a response before dragging the actress from her vehicle. Char? Emily pulled her arm free and tried to reorient herself. The rushing river sounded similar to cars streaming down the freeway in L.A., but the scent seeping into her pores was a fresh mixture of dust and dry grass. What's going on? What am I late for? Charlene paused, narrowing her eyes. Then, grabbing Emily's arm again, she took off toward the building. Don't tell me you didn't get the text message. Bruce had us all come a day early. There's some kind of rodeo next weekend, and he's afraid we won't be able to get anything done with so many people in town. Emily's quickened stride didn't even rival the pace of her heart. She wouldn't get a break after all. Groan. We're starting today. The answer stared back at her in the form of a honey wagon, half hidden behind the point. How would she not notice the trailer the director used for an office? And of all the restaurants she could have stopped at, how did she accidentally end up where she was supposed to be? She smothered a giggle at how she could have innocently been playing tourist at a historical landmark only a mile back, while everyone waited for her here. Char was in no mood to appreciate the joke, though. No, her friend pulled her inside the oversized pine door before sticking one hand on her hip. You didn't get the text. It was a statement, not a question. Emily shook her head. Shoot, it was her fault. It would have been so much easier to blame somebody else. One of these days, she'd remember to charge her cell phone. The first team is waiting for you, girl. Come on. Charlene rushed her forward through a sitting area in front of a massive stone fireplace and past the entrance to a dining hall with a balcony in the distance. The place was bigger on the inside than it had looked. They continued their trek down a flight of stairs into a musty-smelling daylight basement, which, Emily guessed, had been rented for the main actors, or first team, as Char called them. The makeup artist continued to rant. Of all the days to be late, today is the day you have to wear the wedding dress and have your hair fancied up. Emily squinted out a window. The interior of the building seemed dim compared to the bright sunshine. There they were. Bruce had a crew down at the water's edge. He looked at his watch, then yelled at someone hidden from her behind a tree. I'll be fast, Emily sighed before ducking into the restroom. She hoped the day would go by fast. At least there would be no stunts. She'd just have to look pretty. An idea that still made her dubious. Grabbing the gown she'd been fitted for back at the studios, Emily ripped off her summer dress. The costume designer was ready and waiting to fasten the buttons up her back. Before the woman even finished, Shara attacked her face, and the hairstylist began defining her short, dark ringlets with a curling iron and a shower of hairspray. Good enough. She was as camera-ready as she would ever be. Emily lifted up the hem of her scratchy tulle skirt and took off 
out the back door and down the hill, still wearing her own shoes. She'd be barefoot in the rafting scene anyway. Skating on a pine cone, she leapt over a boulder as if she'd planned the move all along. Scanning the crowd for Bruce, her gaze stopped on a man who seemed to have taken over. He wasn't anything like Bruce. He wore the same kind of outdoorsy clothing, but the khaki cargo shorts and sleeveless shirt looked authentic on him. Long, lean muscles and sun-baked skin gave him the appeal that all her acting associates paid big bucks for. But it was his messy hair and laid-back posture that caught her attention. And then he flashed his smile. Trayson Lake laughed and waved his employee away. It was comical to see the difference between the uptight film crew and the fun-loving raft guides. He was excited, though. Whitewater rafting was a rush in itself, but now he'd be orchestrating the direction of a movie through his rafting company. It would be great for business, and the position paid enough for him to finally build a log cabin on his riverfront property. If only the star would arrive so they could get the show rolling. Trayson glanced up the hill to see if there was any sign of Wonder Woman. His scan of the area stopped the moment his gaze reached. A bride? The lady looked as delicate as a snowflake, but by the way she descended from above, she resembled a hailstone. Trayson felt his brows draw together, and he forced himself to survey the rest of the area to see if anyone was with her. Not good. Weddings had been held there before. After all, it was a beautiful location, but there was no wedding scheduled for today that he knew of. If there was, he could kiss his cabin goodbye. The embankment was supposed to be shut down for everyone except the movie crew. His eyes traveled back to the woman in white. He knew her somehow. He couldn't place her, but she looked familiar. Her hair bounced to just below her chin, and he could see the brilliant blue of her eyes as she got closer. His mind scanned through the residents of Sun Valley. None of them fit. Her sapphire stare landed on a spot behind him, and a smile exploded across her face, causing her cheekbones to stand at attention. Scenes from a movie played through his mind. Those features did belong to Wonder Woman, but she'd cut her hair off. He let his gaze linger for a second longer before the anger took over. Not only had she delayed the filming for a full hour, but nobody had told him she'd be wearing a wedding dress. It was like she was taunting him, like she knew his fiancée had run off to seek her fame in Tinseltown. And here she was, a famous movie star, showing up in his backyard dressed for a wedding. Pushing away personal thoughts, he stalked over to Bruce to talk business. Why is she dressed like a bride? Bruce peered up from a squatting position where he'd been in conversation with a technician who seemed to be measuring light. What did you expect for her to wear in a movie titled Whitewater Wedding? Even the lighting tech rolled his eyes at Trayson. They thought he'd ask a stupid question, but they were the ones being idiots. Or were they just incredibly ignorant? Bruce stood and shook his leg as if to get rid of a cramp. It was obvious he wanted to get rid of Trayson as well. The characters are escaping from a forest fire that crashes their ceremony in the woods. How could the director sound so condescending while explaining the ridiculous? Right. Trayson shifted his jaw side to side, wondering how the clown didn't see the risk he was taking with his talent. I agreed to let you shoot this scene without life jackets since the water is pretty calm here. But I didn't know your actress was going to be wearing an anchor. Bruce scratched his balding head and looked past him. An anchor? Trayson placed one sandaled foot on a rock and huffed. What happens if she falls overboard? That dress will absorb enough water to pull her down like she, she's encased in cement. The analogy made his skin grow clammy. Bruce shrugged. She's not going to fall over the side unless I tell her to. She's an experienced stuntwoman. We'll be fine. 
stunt woman? Trayson hadn't heard that before, but what difference did her experience make? It was his responsibility to ensure nothing happened while rafting. Listen, either you have them put life jackets on or... Bruce tilted his chin up. Or what? What else could he do? Or put me in the raft. Bruce's laugh sounded hollow. That's not going to happen. Trayson shot a glance toward the actress in question. Mercy. She had her skirts hiked up to her knees and was kicking off pink flip-flops. She had no clue of the possible danger downriver. Trayson cocked his head as he faced the director. What kind of insurance do you carry? Bruce shook his head, but, glancing at the activity around him, couldn't seem to find a rebuttal to Trayson's argument. Fine, but you're going to have to put on a tux. Trayson hadn't expected the director's response. He'd just become an extra in the film. Nice work. Well, this is Cycle Drops by Chris White. Um, I'll tell you where you can find this online. You'll want to read it for yourself uh, because everybody will read it differently. I think this is Cycle Drops by Chris White. It runs with the speed of the weight it brings, like Mozart. Cycling drops, dewy and dainty, piercing beauty. My hands upraise, my fingers pleach together, church, steeple, people. Light and air, your burdens are not heavy and hopeless, all inward focus. The stuff of which my inner construct is peopled all points to you. Though each cycle drops at its prescribed end, not overused, not underused, but simply used. A new one begins until the time is full, and I, might, and I may fly to you terrified and scandalized and ravished. Oh, my ravaging love, how sick is my heart for you. How deeply do I long for all to be revealed out of time when I may feast upon all that you are and wait upon sweetness to overtake all that I am. Consuming me, enfolding me, exploding me, remolding me, holding me. I would wander the cities of your great heart. I would plunder me, tear asunder these garments of woe, of pomp, and of circumstance. Suffer me one glance of your majesty, and I would be housed in ruin happily for eternity, undone at last. Far from my far country, and home in your great heart, at last and from the first, to wander no more alone, but to wander safe these shores of grace, to swim the deep of justice and not plummet, to climb the height of wisdom and not conquer it, but only to be, and to be as intended. My all in all, my wherefore is you. I know beyond all hope that this is true. There is no need for proof. My evidence is you. I can see you in the cycle drops again and again and again. You can see that at cpwhitemedia.com. Oh, beautiful. Um, many thanks to Chris, Lisa, Angela, and Adam for allowing us to read their work out loud. If you'd like to read more of their work, um, you can find their books online. 
And um, if, if you have a problem with that, um, send us an email, story at beckylyles.com. So that's all for this time. Until next time, happy reading. Bye. Thanks for listening. You can find more of Becky Lyles under the pen name Rebecca Carey Lyles. Her most recent novels, Winds of Wyoming and Winds of Freedom, have both won awards and made the Amazon bestselling list. Steve, well, he just really needs to get his stuff published. If you have comments or suggestions, send them to story at beckylyles.com. Tune in next week for more tall tales and fun fables at Let Me Tell You a Story.